Baptist Broadcast. Thank you for tuning in through Spotify, iTunes, Podcast Addict. If you're watching here on YouTube, please click the subscribe button down below and the bell for continued notifications. The will of God. And of course, this is a massive subject, a, a, a heavy doctrine of the Christian faith. A very influential doctrine in the sense that what you think about the will of God is going to affect everything downstream of the will of God. In other words, what you think about the will of God is going to affect how you think about the effects that God produces. And one of the areas of our theology that constitutes an effect that is produced by the will of God is soteriology. So oftentimes in the doctrine of salvation, which is soteriology, we often hear discussion about God's will. And that seems to be where that seems to be where the doctrine of God's will uh, or the rubber of the doctrine of God's will most meets the road is in soteriology. Um, and unfortunately, whenever these conversations happen regarding soteriology, the soteriological aspects or the 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 facets of our doctrine of soteriology ends up ends up actually uh, defining what we believe about the will of God instead of the other way around, where the will of God actually defines uh, our soteriology. So it's a chicken and the egg scenario, right? Uh, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Um, does God come first or does what God produces come first? And that's not only true in temporal uh, considerations. Uh, obviously, we know that God is first because he's eternal and creation is not. Uh, so in that sense, you know, if we're talking about, uh, you know, kind of trying to talk about duration and chronology, obviously God is first and he's not in time at all. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that's a given. Um, but it's also true in the order of our thinking. So if God is first in the order of being, um, being the uncaused cause of all things, then he needs to be first in our order of thinking as well. And if he's not first in our order of thinking, then our thinking about God's effects and what God produces, salvation being one of those things, is going to drive and ultimately determine what we believe about God himself. And we don't want to do that. We want to instead interpret God's effects insofar as we are able in light of what or who God is. And so um, looking at this doctrine of God's will, I just preached on it uh, this past Lord's Day, and uh, these past two Lord's Days have been very difficult in uh, the second service because uh, of our church, because that's where we're going through the doctrine of God, and these last two weeks have been consumed by uh, the knowledge of God and the will of God, two, two of the most uh, difficult and touchy subjects um, in theology proper uh, and in theology uh, in general. And, um, and so it's, it's, it's been a challenge, but hopefully a fruitful challenge. So what I wanted to do is kind of uh, uh, debrief from, from that most recent sermon on the will of God uh, this past Lord's Day and talk a little bit more about the doctrine of God's will. Um, one of the things that Turretin does, and he's very good um, and precise um, when he does this, is he makes a distinction between two 
sets of distinctions. Um, one set of distinctions, it's the first one that he surveys, is the set of distinctions employed by the Reformed. Um, and so uh, this, this set of distinctions includes necessary and free aspects of God's will, um, uh, decretal and prescriptive, and so on. The second set of distinctions that he surveys, uh, kind of, I think some of them originated early on. I think John of Damascus, he credits with some of them. Uh, but they were mostly latched onto and developed in a, in a very negative way, as in a bad way, by Socinians and Arminians. Uh, and so those are, those are distinctions that Turretin understands as being uh, predominantly found within Arminian and Socinian literature. That's like antecedent and consequent will and so on. Um, so when he looks at the first set of distinctions that are employed by the Reformed, and, and each of these distinctions, these are conceptual distinctions. They're not talking about real distinctions in God or in God's will. These are conceptual distinctions that we make uh, on the basis of being able to distinguish God's works and um, and the, the mode or the manner in which God works um, in creation. Uh, for example, God's decretal will is uh, that which is willed and will certainly come to pass as a result. Um, and uh, God's prescriptive will is his law, his commands for our lives, which creatures often decline from and and fail to perform, and so on. And so that doesn't represent two different opposing or really distinct wills in God. It rather just uh, distinguishes um, two ways or manners in which uh, God uh, is pleased to reveal his will to us, um, decretally or prescriptively. And so, uh, so when we're talking about God's decretal will, one of the conversations that often comes up is uh, is evil. Uh, theodicy, the problem of suffering or the problem of evil, is one of the issues that that comes up uh, in that in that discussion. And so people uh, struggle with God's decretal will because on the one hand, you know, the Calvinists say, uh, which would be myself and and the Reformed tradition, uh, would say that well everything that everything that is is decreed by God and there's nothing that falls without the scope of God's decree. So in other words, God decreed or ordained all things before the foundation of the world. Um, so on the one hand, we have that uh, a comprehensive, exhaustive decree that touches everything in creation, uh, good and evil, um, desirable and undesirable, and so on. So you have that on one hand, and then you have the reality of evil and the fact that God is not the author of evil on the other. Uh, and you have that over here, and people struggling with the comprehensive scope of God's will and the all-enveloping nature of God's decree with the reality of evil and the fact that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Uh, he is pure. He cannot delight in evil, and God only wills what he delights. So how is there evil? If God uh, does what he pleases, uh, as the psalmist says, um, uh, if he doesn't please, if, he's not, if he doesn't take pleasure in evil, 
then how could there be evil if God only does what he pleases, right? Um, and so there have been a number of ways in which uh, this has been uh, dealt with. And the way that the, way that the uh, confessionally reformed tradition has dealt with it is, I think, the most uh, intellectually satisfying way, and it's also, I think, the most biblical or biblically consistent way. Um, and, and that is to there, there are basically two fundamental claims that will shape our understanding going forward, and that is that God only wills, the, can only, only good, only the good serves as the proper object of God's will, all right? Only the good serves as the proper object of God's will. Because the the will of God, whether, I mean, we're talking about here the decretal will of God, uh, what God actually wills to, to, to bring to pass uh, or to perform, um, that which God wills to do, um, the decretal will of God is is has an object that is properly only good, and so um, and so we start with that fundamental confession that God takes pleasure only in the good. He can't take pleasure in the evil because He's good by nature. Uh, he's goodness itself, and so He cannot take pleasure in evil. Uh, and so He He wills the good because God does what He pleases, right? And so he only wills the good. Uh, the good is the only proper object of the will of God. And then the second thing we need to confess that, that goes hand in hand with that is that the nature of evil is, when we're talking about evil properly so-called, is negative. It is, um, it is privative, we might say. So uh, evil is, a, is an absence of good. Um, and so it's not, evil's not like a, another being or a substance alongside the good that's kind of competing for the place of the good. Rather, evil should be seen as a destruction and detraction from the good. Hence the word, for example, the term in Calvinistic orthodoxy, total depravity, right? Deep, to be depraved is to not have something, right? It is to not have the original righteousness from which we fell, from which we declined at the fall, and it is, is, it is to not have that special grace of God necessary for our renewal and restoration and regeneration and so on. Um, and so that's what total depravity uh, insinuates, a totality of depravity that touches all the faculties of man. It's not total in the sense that all the faculties in man are as degraded as they possibly could be. That's not the case. But it's total in the sense that there's not a faculty in man not affected by depravity. That is to say that all of the faculties in man are lacking the grace, naturally, lacking the grace or the goodness, we might say, needed to function properly and ordinately to the glory of God. All right, and so the very doctrine of total depravity assumes that evil, when we're talking about evil, properly so-called evil per se, evil is a privation of the good. And of course, you have um, positive acts, things that people do that we would call evil, and those acts are 
are able to be described positively, but when we're talking about evil in itself, that is the explanation for those acts. Evil is a privation of the good, or it's a privation of the grace needed to obey God uh, uh, perfectly. It's a, it's a, it, properly. Uh, it's a, it's the grace needed in order to obey God properly that is lacking. All right, and so evil we must understand is privative. It's privative of the good. It's it's privative of of what ought to be. Okay, and so um, so having those two anchor points in mind when we're talking about the will of God and dealing with this issue of theodicy, we have to remember God has a proper object of of the will of His will that's only good. Only goodness is the proper object of God's will on one hand, and on the other hand, evil is privative, all right? It is a lack of the good, a lack of grace. Um, okay, so having those two things in mind, we can we can now make another distinction between efficient volition on the one hand and permissive volition on the other. Now, what efficient volition is, is those things God wills um, that are, um, we might say, the objects of which are uh, of of the efficient volition are good, right? Uh, they're fundamentally good. So efficient volition would refer to uh, God's will uh, affecting good in creation. Um, permissive volition, as Turretin explains it, is usually employed when faced with the problem of theodicy or the problem of evil, because what efficient or, or what permissive volition says is not that God is aloof and uninvolved with what he permits, but rather that uh, evil would represent an object of his permissive volition in the sense that it's not God's efficient volition that brings about evil. Because God is not delighting in, in evil such that he, he wills it to come to pass because he takes pleasure in it. That would be his efficient volition. Uh, his permissive volition is rather the refusal to grant the grace needed in order to obviate the evil. So remember, evil is a, is a subtraction from the good. It's a detraction from the good. It's, it's a privation, right? And... And that privation exists so long, in, in, for lack of a better term, that privation exists um, unless God is willing to facilitate the grace needed for it to not exist, all right, because evil is privative. That's why it would be called permissive volition, because it's not something that God is creating and actively sustaining because he takes pleasure in it. It's rather a, a, uh, a privation of the good that God is actively withholding grace from. So we say that, uh, you know, when we're talking about his, permiss his permissive volition, he's not, he's not aloof. He's not uninvolved. There's not some pocket of creation that's operating unbeknownst to him or apart from his decree uh, or his decretal will. Rather, it refers, permissive volition refers to uh, the manner in which a thing is willed, right? So it's not willed positively because God takes pleasure in it, evil. Evil is not willed positively because God takes pleasure in it, nor can it be willed positively because it's a privation. So instead we say God wills it 
by virtue of permissive volition. Um, and not only that, but to, to add to that, and this is very important, what God wills according to his permissive volition is always in service to his efficient volition bringing about the good that he does take pleasure in. <clears throat> so one example of this would be where this actually comes out quite clear would be something like um, Genesis 52, I think. Um, let me pull it up here. Um, actually, I'll just do this. Let's see. Genesis 50, not 52. I'm a dope. Um, so whenever Joseph confronts his brothers, uh, he doesn't really confront them, but when he interacts with his brothers, his brothers um, finally understand who he is at this point, and, um, and he's recounting, of course, their sin and their evil intent in selling him uh, into the slave trade and, um, and so on because of their jealousy and greed and so on. Um, and so he says to them in Genesis 50, 20, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Um, so there you kind of have the dynamic, right? Um, Joseph doesn't say that God willed the evil for the evil. All right. Rather, God's not willing the evil for the evil. And that's why it's not ascribed to his efficient volition. Because efficient volition <clears throat> entails God willing the good because it's good, right? Um, whereas permissive volition would refer to something like the circumstance in Genesis 50, verse 20, where uh, there is evil that falls within the scope of God's will, uh, yet is not willed because it is evil. It is willed as a means to some other end that is good, all right? So it's called permissive volition. So it's not... Remember, if God only does what he pleases, he cannot be said to will the good according to, or will evil according to his efficient volition, because it would follow then that God is taking pleasure in evil. And so we have to have some way to talk about how the manner in which God would will evil, but also not take pleasure in evil, but instead take pleasure in a good the means of which is coming about according to the means of 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 what he permissively um, wills. So now let's let's talk a little bit about permissive volition. Is it right? Because I think what happens is is again the and I alluded to this earlier. The assumption is God is aloof. Um, there is something that God doesn't have control over whenever. Uh, whenever there, whenever we say that he has, uh, that he is permitting something or allowing something, we're we're assuming in that language that there's something that God doesn't have anything to do with, um, and so he's allowing it, as a creature might allow um, something to take place uh, just by virtue of not doing anything about it, um, and, and that's not, of course, what we're talking about. But what we are trying to be faithful to is the biblical witness. Um, it is biblical to say that God permits and that God allows. And the reason that's the case is, well, one reason that's the case is 1 Corinthians um, chapter 15, verse 7. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'm sorry, chapter 16, verse 7, um, 
we read, For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. And that word for permit there um, is is actually, um, uh, it, it means to... Uh, to permit, to allow, or to give leave. And so here uh, Paul is using the word permission in reference to the will of the Lord. Um, he could have said, if the Lord wills, um, but instead he chooses to use the word permit. So I don't think permit, um, and especially when we're talking about God's permissive volition, I don't think it's it's inordinate to use that kind of language. Uh, another place where this happens is in Hebrews 6, where Paul, or, well, I think it's Paul, but where the author of Hebrews is is talking about moving on from milk to, to solid food or to meat. And he says there in, um, in uh, the first three verses, Hebrews 6, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptism, of laying on ha- uh, the, the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. And again, the 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 word used there is the same word um, used, which is epitrope or something like that. It's the same word used back in First Corinthians sixteen seven. And so it's it's biblical to use that kind of language. And I think it's. It's helpfully appropriated in that distinction between God's efficient volition and his permissive volition. Remember, efficient volition entails that which God takes pleasure in, and so he wills it because he takes pleasure in it. Um, permissive volition entails those things that he wills, which he does not take pleasure in, but they are yet being used or utilized as a means to bring about good and to show God's glory in the economy. And so I think that's a helpful way of, of talking about God's volition. And it helps us, it helps us really, uh, to, to, to maintain a proper theology proper. This is doing theology, I think in the right order, because it's not allowing our doctrine of theodicy to shape what we think about God. Instead, it, it really starts with God and it says, okay, well, there cannot be, God cannot take pleasure in anything but the good, because he is holy, all right? So it's starting with the attributes of God. It starts with the character and nature of God. Uh, it says that God cannot um, will evil for its own ends, because God is just. God is holy. And, and not only that, but explicitly in the biblical testimony, in the biblical witness, we see that God is, is, is not the author of, of evil. And so um, we're maintaining the integrity, the holiness uh, of God's nature, uh, while also, uh, I think, giving a rational and um, and cohesive account of of evil in the world. Um, there's evil in the world. Why is there evil in the world? It ultimately comes down to the purpose and pleasure of God, not pleasure in the evil, but pleasure in the good that the evil is resulting and God took pleasure in Joseph's final state in Joseph's condition uh, toward the end of his life where he was able to say to his brothers what you meant for evil God meant for good God took pleasure in Joseph's in in where Joseph ended up but he did not take pleasure in his brother's wicked 
uh, greed and jealousy. He didn't take pleasure in that, though he used that within his within the scope of his decretal will to bring about Joseph's end state toward the end of his life, all right, which was a good and pleasing state in the eyes of God. Anyway, we're going to go ahead and fold up here. Uh, we're almost at 25 minutes. Just wanted to come on and talk about that. It aligns with something that I, I recently preached, and I think it's useful to expand on some of those things sometimes. So if you guys enjoyed it, please like, subscribe to the channel, and, um, and even share if you are so inclined. God bless.